Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Eula Biss about whiteness. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Let's just talk, and then if we have to um, pause, we'll do that. Great. <clears throat> okay, we can pick something back up. Um, so, yeah, so so I've, I was saying that, you know, Chris, I feel like I lost one in one ear. I stopped getting that weird. <laughs> There's something funny about working with technology. It's Friday. That I know. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, what is that? Yeah, is no, gone? that's better. Okay, okay I'll just, just I'll touch it again. If it, okay, all right. So, um, so, but, so that's, that's where I, that's what I want us to, that's kind of how I'm, I'm going into this. Um, and, yeah. and by the way, as you know, that also does touch on even the work you did with on immunity. So, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. But where I, where I start my um, my conversations always is inquiring about the religious or spiritual background um, mm. of someone's childhood, and I know you've said that somewhere that you were you you kind of are grew up a stranger to Western religious tradition in any case. But I I'm really mm. interested in an expansive definition of you know the spiritual background of your childhood and perhaps how it relate sure. how how it you know what you think helped form you in terms mm-hmm. of your sense of inner life human wholeness human dignity these things mm-hmm. you reflect on now mm-hmm. yeah in terms of religion my background's a little complicated um in that my father was raised catholic and he was uh he was a very serious catholic and served as an altar boy mm. um but was no longer in the church by the time he had children um and i spent the first part of my childhood longing to have a religion <laughs> our neighbors were evangelical christians and um and I just felt like they had something that I didn't have, yeah. a, a relationship with God um, mm-hmm. that I wanted. And um, and then when I was um, 10 or 11, my mother uh, became part of the Yoruba tradition. Um, oh. And this is a, a West African religion. Yeah. Um, that it's made its way um, through slavery and the diaspora to the states, and um, and she and our family were part of a, a Yoruba community in upstate New York for a few years, till I went to college, hmm. um, and somewhere in there, let's see, I think at at maybe the same moment that she got involved with the Yoruba tradition, I was insisting that I wanted church, proper church. 
Um, and this was something that my mother wasn't going to do. Um, but our compromise was uh, that for for a year I went to the Unitarian Church that was in our area, um, which was wonderful. I somehow landed there in exactly the year when that Unitarian Church did sex ed with my age group. So <laughs> I didn't get God. I got sex um, every Sunday for a year. Um, and that's what the Unitarians gave to me. It was a very sex positive community. So um, that's that's what I got from that community. And mm. the, the Yorba community that we were part of was a, a really rich, um, incredibly valuable experience for me. Um, it's I, those teachings and those stories are still part of my thinking. Um, f- I think for the most part, my own spiritual practice is com- somewhat separate from tradition. I never had enough of a, a footing in any religious tradition for my spirituality to feel like grounded in a religious tradition. But mm. um, both Catholicism and, and the Yoruba tradition f- have fed my thinking. That's really interesting. Um, and as I, as I said to you um, before we started speaking, I'm, I really want to focus, I want to frame our conversation around um, ideas that you, that you pulled together so compellingly in this article you wrote in the New York Times December, into December 2015 called White Debt, Reckoning with What is Owed and What Can Never Be Repaid for Racial Privilege. Mm-hmm. But as I, um, so I've been looking forward all year to having this conversation with you, but as I then finally started preparing to interview you, I, I realized as I read, you know, what you've been writing for a long time, you've actually been living and thinking um, around this subject for a long time. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, you have a cousin who's, as you wrote in your notes from No Man's Land, um, when did you publish that book, by the way? That, that was oh, 2009. Actually, in front of me, 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you wrote, it, it very much centers around themes of race, and, and you actually have in your family a cousin who's of mixed race. Um, there's There are mixed race adoptions in your family. In fact, most of our families, if we trace them fully, we'd probably mm-hmm. find this. But your mother's longtime boyfriend when you were a teenager was African-American. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. Yeah, you know, this is something I'm I'm happy to talk about this and mm-hmm. I'll I'll illuminate the details, but this is something that I do try to resist the idea that there's something unique or special about my the kind of racial makeup of my family yeah. that made me, you know, attuned to race because I feel like that supports this idea that only people who are racially other have an entryway into yeah race and and it kind of supports this idea that that being white is not racialized right this yeah, this right. idea that if you're white you're nothing um and and there's no reason to think about nothing right and this was it, i ran into this a lot actually after that book came out in 2009 a lot of the questions i got were questions along the lines of um what what's special in your background that makes you um, authorized? You know, really, the the gist of these questions was what authorizes you to speak on race? And my answer was, I too live in America, and I too exist in a racialized space, and whiteness is in this country a race, and yeah. um, 
so that's I guess that's my preamble to the answer. Um, And the answer is that I I think you're right. I think most American families are in one way or another somewhat racially complicated. Mine was maybe especially so. Um, I have an uncle from Jamaica. I have mixed race cousins. I have uh, a cousin who was uh, adopted and has Native American lineage. Um, and yeah, and my household when I was growing up um, was was mixed and my stepsister was black. My stepfather was black. Um, my, my niece was black. So... Um, so this was, you know, and I think, and then the community, my mother's religious community was a very ethnically, racially diverse community that had Native Americans, African Americans, um, and um, and Puerto Ricans in that community. So there, there was, um, I was exposed, I guess, to people from a lot of different backgrounds, um, but I think... I, I don't think that that is in America all that unusual either. Yeah, right. Um, <clears throat> right. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I think I'll go ahead and do this. I actually, um, there's just this paragraph that I love in uh, in Notes from No Man's Land. Um, were you talking about your cousin? Maybe this is just because I think questions make the world go around. You said... Mm. I feel like an unknown quantity, my cousin remarked at some point during the year that we lived together. This is your mixed-race cousin. She was referring to the algebraic term, the unknown quantity X, which must be solved for or defined by the numbers in the equation around it. I remember when I first encountered algebra, feeling the limits of my own comprehension break around the concept that one number in an equation could be unknown. And what baffled me most was that the answer in algebra was known, but the question was incomplete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, I, I also think it's in that, that analogy you make there is an interesting way to talk about uh, how, we, how we are grasping now to just to, 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 to grapple with this um, and that we don't even have the right questions. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, and I may be reading into it, but that really jumped no, out at no. me. I, I, that's, that's exactly, I think, what I was reaching towards. And I think this idea that I, I think a lot of our, even the questions we're asking around race are incomplete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, to circle around to this, you were saying about uh, that piece, White Debt, that y- you liked that it didn't, um, frame the problem as the, the presence of non-white people in this country, right? And that's somehow yeah. that's sometimes how we ask questions about race, right? Is uh-huh. why are these people who aren't white causing so many problems? Where that's to, to my eye, that's not the question to ask. Yeah. And um, and I think I was reminded of this recently when I read this classic work of economics called um, the Affluent Society. Um, it's Kenneth Galbraith, I mm-hmm. think that's the, the author. A- anyways, in there he starts out by saying that um, he had intended to do a, uh, a study of poverty in the United States, and he, he wanted to study the poor, and that in this study of poverty, 
he, I, I don't think he really even got into it. He, he embarked on it and made the realization that maybe the problem is not poverty. Maybe the problem is affluence. And so <laughs> okay. yeah. he, it, it's instead of being a study of poverty, it's a study of affluence. And it's incredibly interesting. Um, and he kind of illuminates the problems that our particular brand of affluence has caused for our society um, and how building this particular kind of affluence has hurt our society as a whole, right? Hurt the affluent as well as the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, that's a really good analogy for race. You know, I think the problem all along has been whiteness and, and defining whiteness against a, a group that must then be considered a lesser in yeah. order for whiteness to be a, a privileged category. Yeah. Um, and that's we can trace that historically, but it's also it, it's a contemporary attitude as subterranean as it might be, you know, as buried as it might be now. It's still an attitude. Yeah, I um and and you are also well. I don't know. Gosh, I want to go so many places with. So you know, I had a conversation last year with John Powell. Are you familiar with his work? He's at Berkeley. No. Anyway, he's a great. Mm-hmm. He's a legal scholar, but he's a, he's a wonderful voice on on race and on all of these um, these kind of front lines in our society right now around race. And uh, you know, one thing he says is race race is relational. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, f- I found a kind of uh, a parallel. Um, <clears throat> uh, definition for you know race is a social fiction, but it is also a social fact. I mean that's, that's yeah. another another way of talking yeah. about that. I mean because mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. what you know what is whiteness, and once you start to talk about it, we can describe the phenomenon, the way we all live mm-hmm. around this idea. In mm-hmm. fact, the idea. I mean, you also say whiteness is not kinship or a culture. White people mm-hmm. are no more closely related to one another genetically than we are to black people. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is, you know, there's there's tons of great scholarship around this idea that race is socially constructed. And, um, and there's people who can speak on that much better than I can. But I do think it's important, you know, the other half of that equation, the it's, it's a myth, but it's a social reality, too. Mm-hmm. It's we live within this myth that we've made. Um, but a surprising number of people do consider race, a, you know, a biological fact. Yeah. Um, so, and that's some of the pushback I got from that article was people saying, "What do you mean it's not real?" Um, and you know, I, I had a correspondence actually with someone who wrote to me after that piece, White Debt, came out, and I was talking about how. In different countries, race is understood differently, and this is this was one of the examples that was useful to me when I first encountered this subject. Was um, that in Brazil, the the history of thinking around race is different than it is here, yeah. and so there's a kind of inversion of our. Um, you know, the United States has this one drop rule historically. If you have one drop of discernible. Um, African-American blood, you will be considered non-white, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. In, in Brazil, that's inverted. So if you have any discernible European heritage, you're white. Um, and <laughs> so right. the vast majority of people in Brazil who would look in, in our country, we would call them um, we would call them non-white, are considered white in Brazil. So there's, you know, this this is... One illustration of how it's um, 
our categories around race are actually quite fluid. There, there, there are no biological markers for these categories because they are social inventions. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not important, right? That doesn't yeah. mean that they don't affect how people live and how people experience the world and how they get treated most importantly, right? And, but also their, their economic and social legacy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and I, I find uh, what I, what I, one thing I love about this article you wrote and, <clears throat> and about your writing in general is that you, you know, one way you um, try to approach this subject with some mm, directness and some freshness, um, you know, maybe again to, to, to draw on what we were talking about a minute ago about, you know, kind of, mm, I would say, you know, turning the questions. Um, you interrogate words, just, you know, individual mm-hmm. words, language. Um, that always appears in this conversation that we don't really know how to have. Um, language, interrogating language as a way of searching for better understanding. So, so that you know, whiteness is is there, and and then also the the word privilege, um, mm-hmm. which you noted is composed of the Latin words for private and law. And when mm-hmm. you write about that, you reflect on an experience you had of actually. Not that you knew it at the time, but committing a felony <laughs> while you were at college. So mm-hmm. talk about that, about how you have come to understand privilege. Sure. Yeah. You know, the etymologies of words and, and you know, maybe this is my my way to insight because I'm a writer, but the etymologies of words are always very revealing to me. And and this word privilege has been in the air for me for for a very long time. And mm. it's a word that I've used for years before I understood its etymology. And, and when I saw the Latin roots of privilege, I suddenly understood the word much better. It became much clearer to me. I guess the concept got clarified. Um, And I think what's sometimes missing from that concept is that idea that if one person has privilege, another person doesn't, right? So uh, I remember having a conversation with some other um, some other writers who are also mothers of young children, and we were talking about privilege. And one of the mothers said in frustration, she said, um, well, I don't think me having privilege is a problem. I just think everyone should have it. Um, right. And, you know, and but the very definition of privilege makes that impossible, right? It's a, it's a, something that you have only because someone else does not. So mm. this idea of privilege being a private law, I think illuminates that quality of privilege where mm. um, if you have a law that only applies to you, that necessarily means the laws are different for other people and that that kind of privilege cannot be shared. It's not something that everyone is going to have. If everyone has the same laws, then privilege doesn't exist. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I do think that that's the that's where we need to what we need to work towards as a society. Right. Is is where the laws apply to everyone equally. Um, but, yeah, you know, I've actually had a number of experiences where I. I either understood immediately or I came to understand that the laws of our country were applying to me differently than they might apply to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, but that experience from college um, came from a moment when some friends and I were organizing a, a series of talks on race, actually, at Hampshire College. And one of our speakers was Billy Upsky, um, who's uh, um, 
he's an activist and um, and a graffiti artist. And we took an image from his book. His book is called Bomb the Suburbs. And we took a, an image from it and made a poster. And the poster said, Bomb the Suburbs. Um, and a friend of mine and I wheat pasted these posters, huge posters, all over the, the town of Amherst, Massachusetts. I'm unreformed because I still find this funny. Um, <laughs> And, and it's true that I didn't think a lot about what I was doing. You know, we climbed buildings. We put it on the plate glass window of the pizza shop. We put it on um, billboards. These posters were all over Amherst. Um, and the, the day after we pasted all these po- photo, uh, posters up all over town, um, our campus police officer came to, to visit us. And he said, um, I'm going to have to take you for an interview with the Amherst police. And um, and I think we had realized that we could get in some trouble, but it hadn't occurred to us that we could get in that much trouble. Um, and it definitely had not crossed my mind that I had committed a felony. Right. I also did not know that graffiti was considered a felony, that, yeah. that's, that it could be punishable as a felony. Um, but what we had done fell under that category um, for the Amherst police and... Um, and we were brought in for questioning and we did deny everything and we were um, eventually let go with the promise that we were going to clean everything up. So we we never admitted to doing it, but everyone in that room understood that we'd done it and our job was to clean it up. Yeah. Um, and this was a case where I, I after the fact, I, I began to piece together that... The law that made graffiti a felony was not designed to punish a white college you. student who was publicizing her event on campus. Right. And that, that that is part of why that issue didn't get pushed any farther with me and with my white friend. Yeah. Um, does that mean that law is just for anyone? No. Um, and that's that was one of those moments where... Um, the concept of privilege was opened for me a little bit, illuminated. Um, I, yeah, I do feel like a lot of us who are white, especially those of us who have children, have been becoming more aware of those kinds of examples recently. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's one thing that's kind of rising to the surface. I remember Michelle Alexander, who's you know who's African American, who wrote the New Jim Crow, but you know she went. To, mm-hmm. I think it was Emory, talking about all the people who are in prison for. Uh, for doing things, um, you know, partying or you know, f- facilitating drug taking that that she and uh, you know that that people at um, liberal arts colleges, ex- you know, elite colleges do all the time, mm-hmm. and is simply they are simply not in the same kind of danger of being treated as criminals for that. Mm-hmm. And there's so many examples of this. Yeah. Oh, there's so many. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was just this summer, I live in Evanston, Illinois, and um, and there's there's beaches along Lake Michigan here. And um, just this summer, the day after a group of, um, I think a group of African-American high school kids who were drinking beer on the beach got, um, got 
taken in by the police, but got arrested. And the next day, my husband and I were walking by the beach and we saw a group of our neighbors, white neighbors, um, standing around on the beach. Their kids were playing and they were drinking out of red plastic cups, the kind that like frat boys drink yeah. out of. Yeah. And they were they were drinking wine. Everyone knew they were drinking wine. Like the, the life, I'm sure the lifeguard knew they were drinking wine. And my husband said to me, that's what white privilege looks like. And um that's that was an instance where there's these, you know, 40 year olds who are drinking wine on the beach are not going to be held to the law that says you can't drink on the beach. But the African-American teenagers are. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's another case where the same law is being applied differently. Um, yeah. And it feels like on the surface, that feels so like such a. Well, it doesn't feel harmless. It doesn't. It doesn't feel harmless the minute you realize that somebody else was punished for it for doing it, right? Right. It, but it's such right. a such a simple um, thing. I mean, one of the other words that you took a, take apart, you say that the word complacence, as you looked at the roots of that word, the etymology of that word, that in fact it did not mean what you expected it to mean, and mm, that also yeah. was a way to reflect on this. Yeah, I think I I was looking for when I was looking for a word for to describe what I felt like the dominant white attitude was or mm -hmm. the dominant white mindset was. I was looking for a word that would describe a kind of blindness that was um, that wasn't even willful, right? right and right. and and when I looked at the the meaning of the word complacent, it, it actually looked more intentional than than the meaning I was searching for, um, because I, I think that that's that's part of the problem is the the attitude is highly unintentional. It's highly unexamined. Yeah. It's um, it's relaxing into your own privilege without even thinking about it. Yeah. Um, and that, again, is one of the privileges of being white, right, mm -hmm. is that you can coast through your experience, you can coast through your life without having to think about what your race means to other people and what you, your existence in a community means to the people around you. Yeah. Um, you, you cite this essay by Claudia Rankin um, mm. that she wrote in the New York Times Magazine after the Charleston, the massacre mm. in the church in Charleston. Um, she she wrote, she wrote I, I asked another friend what it's like being the mother of a black son the condition of black life is mourning she said bluntly mourning M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G for her mourning lived in real time inside her and her son's reality at any moment she might lose her reason for living though the white lip Though the white liberal imagination likes to feel temporarily bad about black suffering, there really is no mode of empathy that can replicate the daily strain of knowing that as a black person, you can be killed for simply being black. No hands in your pockets, no playing music, no sudden movements, no driving your car, no walking at night, no walking in the day, no turning onto this street, no entering this building, no standing your ground, no standing here, no standing there, no talking back, no playing with toy guns, no living while black. And you wrote, sitting with her essay in front of me, I asked myself what the condition of white life might be. 
I know that word complacence is something that you reflected on, but I, I wonder how you, you know, how, how would you think about that question right now, what the condition of white life might be, how to start to mm. summarize that or to evoke that? Yeah, well, I guess my mind, it goes right to the particulars and, and that moment that you read from Claudia's essay. She's an incredibly powerful writer. Yes. And that moment that you read made me think of a meeting that I was recently in at my son's elementary school, um, I think because of Claudia's friend talking about her son and um, and the the question of how to keep him safe. And I was at a meeting that was uh, parents discussing how we were going to bring the issue of talking about race to the school community. And... Um, and there was a huge range of experience in this room. There were parents who had not talked to their children about race at all. Um, and there were parents for whom it was a daily concern. And there was a Kenyan woman there who um, was saying that uh, the way her children looked every day had everything to do with how dangerous she understood it to be to be black in America. And... Um, she talked about the way she dressed her two children and the way she taught them to talk to strangers and uh, the way she taught them to act in public. And um, and I was thinking about how um, how few of those concerns um, I had shared, especially around safety um, mm. in, in in terms of I, I haven't spent time training my son in ways of being polite, for instance, because I'm afraid that someone will kill him. Um, yeah. And I think that that, uh, that doesn't directly answer your question, but it, it points back towards the, you know, the state of white life um, or the, the, the state we're in. Yeah. Um, I have, and I do also think that Another like indicator of where we are around race is that my decision to talk to my son about race from a very early age, so we started talking about race when he was two or three, is considered somewhat controversial among the other white parents that I know. And even the fact that there'd be some controversy around that, the, the fact that I would get letters from strangers telling me that talking to my son about race uh, amounts to child abuse. What, is, what, what was um, that about? How are they? What was the connection? <laughs> so, you know, in, in this piece, um, White Debt, that was published mm -hmm. in the New York Times, I recount a few conversations that I had with my son around race. Yes, okay. And... Um, um, and a number of letters that I received after the fact um, let me know that they that that other parents considered this um, abusive, inappropriate, harmful to my son. That I was cultivating self hatred in this uh, young white boy um, by having conversations with him starting when he was quite young about what it means to be white in this country and what the legacy of whiteness is here. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think that that also is a little window into where we are. Um, and I consider it absolutely essential, especially where we live, for my son to have um, to have as comprehensive an understanding of 
um, his place in in the racial dynamic as um, as he possibly can. Um, and so I did have conversations with him that I think many parents would have considered a, a three year old too young to have. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought I was thinking of um, you know a story that went through my mind uh, just now as I was reading that passage from Claudia Rankin. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it, well, it was uh, my son who, who just, who's, who's bigger than yours, who's mm. now 18, but la- you know, last, the last couple of years he did something at high school, which is a tradition here, uh, this kind of bizarre tradition at Twin Cities High School is called Nerf Wars. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it, I don't know, I, I, despite myself, I, I kind of got caught up in the joy, the gleefulness of these kids with these biz- stupid looking purple, you know, kind of uh, plastic um, guns, but they don't, mm-hmm. I mean, they mostly don't look like guns, um, you know, coming up with these great strategies to corner people in their yards and in their garages. And mm-hmm. uh, it was teamwork. And But um, so most of the guns don't look like guns, but some of them, some mm-hmm. of them actually do. And the thing is, I found myself terrified for the African-American friend of his on his team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't terrified for my son. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, really terrified because uh, it just felt incredibly dangerous. And mm-hmm. um, it's kind of having that conversation with my son. The thing is, our kids, we and our kids live with um, we live with this. It's also a remove from that reality, right? Even yeah. even those of us who care. Um, I mean, you, you know, you live in, you live in Chicago, right? You're at Northwestern. I mean, you're in a suburb. I live right outside Chicago. So I live in Evanston in now. Evanston, I, I've yeah. moved. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just now, like we're talking at a moment where the Cubs have just won the World Series, mm-hmm. but in this same period of time, I remember reading the scrolls on the news screen about how many teenagers were killed in Chicago, you know, last mm-hmm. weekend. And I yeah. I ask myself, is that the same Chicago? Are all those people celebrating <laughs> celebrating the World mm-hmm. Series as well? Or or, you know, I live in a placid, uh, kind of high functioning, leave it to beaver neighborhood in St. Paul, Minnesota. The kind of neighborhood where you can you know, I moved here because your kids can get on their bicycle on a Saturday morning and not come back until dinner time. You don't ever worry about them. But uh, right around the corner from my house, like five blocks from my house this year, Philando Castile was shot. Mm-hmm. But the the fact that we have to talk about this with our kids, because somehow, even though we are inhabiting our cities together, we're not having the same experience. Mm-hmm. It's very complicated and disturbing when you start to look at it that way. It is. It really is. And, you know, this fall, um, an article came out that really rattled some parents in our neighborhood, including me. An article came out in Bloomberg News that was about um, the high school that is here, Evanston Township High School, which is high school for all of Evanston. Yeah. 
<clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a tickle in my throat now. It's okay. You take um, a drink of water if you need one. <coughs> oh, that would be great if you. Thanks so much. Um, sorry, I'm just going to wait for the water yeah, so yeah, I can that. complete my thought yeah. without coughing through <laughs> okay. it. Okay. All right. <coughs> Oh, good. I'm glad. Thank you so much. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Sorry about that. Yeah, sure. So I'm going to back up a couple yeah, phrases. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so this fall, an, an article came out in Bloomberg Ner News um, that was that was making the rounds of conversation in my neighborhood um, is it was, it was an article about Evanston Township High School, um, which is the high school that serves everyone in Evanston. Um, so it's, it's necessarily a highly integrated high school. I think the numbers are slightly more than 50% white. Um, and then the rest of the school is African American and Hispanic. And, um, and a series of studies, um, one of them done at Stanford and another done within the Evanston school districts, found that in these uh, in these integrated schools that we have in Evanston, um, black students and white students are not um, getting the same education. Yeah. And so this is even within the same buildings with the same teachers, um, within the same physical space. Um, and the the other disturbing fact is that even if you control for income, um, that black students who are middle class or upper, upper middle class are still not um, getting the education that white students who are middle class are getting. So you can't um, you can't say oh this is about the support they don't have at home, right? And, right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's it, and I think it's still unclear exactly. Um, what the nature of the problem is, but one of the phrases that came up in this article that one of the researchers used a phrase, opportunity hoarding, um, and they used this phrase to describe um, what white parents do to make sure that their students, that their children are getting more than yeah. other children yeah. are getting. And, um, and this phrase was really resonant for me, and I really thought about... Um, both the opportunity hoarding that I had seen around me and the opportunity hoarding that I myself had engaged in. Um, and in one example of opportunity hoarding that I'm just remembering from this article was uh, that, for instance, um, something a little over 90 percent of white students at Evanston Township High School have taken at least one advanced placement class. Mm -hmm. And the numbers for African-American students are around 50 percent. So yeah. um, there's many more white students, disproportionate amount of white students ending up in advanced placement classes. Um and there's probably a lot of factors that that feed into that, right? It's there's parent advocacy. There's probably some some racial bias going on on the part of the school. There's there's probably dozens of different factors, um, but um, but the one that I think the reason that that term opportunity hoarding spoke to me is I thought, well, well, that's something I can control for. Like that's something yeah. that 
that's something I can watch in my own behavior. And that's something that I could have conversations with my neighbors around and how we're treating the opportunities that are available to um, our, our children and whether we're ensuring that those opportunities are available to all the children in our community. And don't you think also... Uh, I mean that's that's a kind of it's a it's an unsettling phrase opportunity hoarding but yeah, but it oh, also deeply, yeah. right but it almost feels like it it uh, speaks to that notion of privilege that we walk around with that that cultivating privilege and you know when it comes to our children we're so I mean there's such a fierce drive that we have right to give them the best to do, right mm-hmm. to make things possible for them it doesn't even it it's not uh i think consciously uh about wanting them to flourish at the expense of someone else but but what mm-hmm. you're pointing out and what that language makes clear is that in fact that is what that is what happens and and maybe i'm wrong that no that it's and always i think unconscious. that that yeah and that mm-hmm. especially when we're talking about limited resources right if those limited resources are hoarded it necessarily means somebody isn't getting them. So if it's an unlimited resource, then the question is different. It's how do we get this unlimited resource to everyone? Um, But a limited resource, it's a different kind of problem. If some people have it, another group of people is not going to have it. Um, So it's, um, I think it, it does, and for me it recalls all the, the legalized ways in which white people have engaged in opportunity hoarding historically over several hundred years. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this this thinking got refreshed for me when I bought a house here in Evanston um, and, and buying a house and getting a mortgage um, inspired me to do a little bit of research into um housing laws and the history of redlining in my community and um, and the history of housing discrimination and mortgage discrimination in Chicago. And uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates has written really beautifully about this, and to, especially in his piece, um, The Case for Reparations. He, he very elegantly lays out uh, a history of legalized housing discrimination. Um, and some of his examples, his particulars, come from Chicago. And, um, and when you look at that history, you can see a highly intentional and entirely legal um, history of white people hoarding both real estate and financial resources like mortgages um, at the expense of other people. And and even, you know, in the case of predatory lending, there's people making money at the expense of African-American families who who lose their houses because of the the unfair loans that they've been given, the the poor terms of lending. Um, So. This was another, you know, buying a house was another moment where I felt that I was kind of forced to reflect on on how I was benefiting personally from a a long history of racist policies in my country. Um, Yeah, I was just speaking with Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote mm, The Warmth of Other mm -hmm. Sons and... 
very much to that point, you know, she talks about when there was this exodus of you know, six million African Americans in the 20th century from the South to the North, mm-hmm. they were still, you know, they, they could only live in certain places and those certain places, you know, turn out to now be our inner cities um, mm-hmm. and were charged exorbitant rates mm-hmm. to live in places, you know, because they had no choice. It wasn't, it wasn't, mm-hmm. um, and that is mm-hmm. built in. That is in the DNA of our of our of our of our cities. You're right, and and that was very mm-hmm. intentional. Whereas I think we can imagine that there's not racism behind a lot of what happens now. I mean, you started. That's the buying of the house was kind of the image that you worked with in this New York Times piece, of, and mm-hmm. the and really delving into the the meaning of debt and the experience of debt. Yeah. And moral, yeah, and moral I debt do think, as well. Yeah, the moral debt. You know, what really broke that piece open, I knew for a long time that I wanted to write about um, the feelings I was having around uh, buying and owning a house and, and getting a mortgage. But what broke that piece open was a conversation with my neighbors who had lived in Germany. And uh, one of my neighbors mentioned to me that the word for debt in German is also the word for guilt. Yeah, and sure. uh, kind of, you know, that that was very illuminating for me. Um, and... I have for a long time wanted to think about white guilt in a way that could be productive, um, you know, both personally productive, but also socially and politically productive. It's a really, as a term, white guilt is pretty poisonous. People don't want to touch it or be accused of it or engage in it. Um, But I, I wondered, you know, is there some way that, that, a white person can admit moral culpability, right, and mm-hmm. and claim that in a way that isn't um, embarrassing or um, or or cast as. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think of all the ways that we treat white guilt. Well, you know, what, it, yeah. it, it's treated as silly, really. Or, you well, know, and or even the notion of white privilege. Well, what I experience. You know, what we're very attentive to editorially, when we put shows on the air around race, Mm -hmm. around these issues that you could, you know, you want people to listen. Mm -hmm. And, And I don't, and I personally don't think people get paralyzed or turn away because they don't care. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. it's true that sometimes mm-hmm. they don't care, but I, there's a paralysis that sets in, right? Mm-hmm. It's about, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to make it better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one reason, uh, you know, one doesn't put guilt in a in a show title. <laughs> right, uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you make a really interesting... Uh, but uh, well, first of all, I want to say, like the way you talk, the way the kind of analogy with buying a house, and then and then and then a kind of, you know moral debt, you know, is that mm-hmm. you, you know, you take loans against down payments and increases increase the riches you're living with, the, the ease of forgetting that we're paying for something, the ease of forgetting a debt at a certain amount of privilege, uh, mm-hmm. the fact that once mm-hmm. you've been living in a house for a while, you kind of you it's you believe it's yours even though mm-hmm. you don't own it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you, but you also say that um, 
you know, you are. I think you're arguing for saying, not letting guilt be a bad word. A kind of honoring yeah. the fact that you wrote, "Why not imagine guilt as a prod, a goad, an impetus to action? Isn't guilt an essential cog in the machinery of the conscience? Maybe mm-hmm. we should try to let this word in, welcome this word in." This conversation about race, like I honestly think we we talk about race when we don't know, when we talk about how we don't know how to talk about it. I mean, it's not even really mm-hmm. like we do have a national conversation about race. And no, maybe because no. we don't let the word guilt in. I mean, maybe that's, mm-hmm. this is important. Yeah. And I, I do think it's important. I, I do think, you know, com- circling it back to this question of, you know, what's the state of white life? Yeah. I do think the state of white life is that we're living in a house we believe we own, but that we've never paid off. And that, that is, that's a dangerous situation. And, um, and that it's, I think it's both socially and psychologically dangerous to believe you own something that isn't yours. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do, I also think that maybe, you know, Maybe the language that people could find more palatable, right? It would be this this word responsibility, <laughs> this, yeah. you know, this this word that we associate with adulthood and yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. and drudgery. Than shame. Yeah. But that's that's another coloration of guilt, right? Is that there's a there's there's that meaning of the word guilt that gestures at responsibility um, because I am culpable for this. I am now responsible Culpable for. for and benefiting from, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And benefiting from, you know, I think a lot of people want to wash their hands because the benefit has been indirect, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's but, in a lot of cases the culpability can feel indirect too, but mm-hmm. it doesn't so it doesn't make it right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. You know, I have I have the unusual situation of of living in a house. The house that that we bought here in Evanston has an identical twin that's right next door to it. So we live in a little brick bungalow that is right next door to an identical brick bungalow. Mm. And these two brick bungalows were built by brothers. And um, neither of those brothers live in the houses anymore. But our next door neighbor is an African-American man who's been living in his house since I was born. and so we have, we're a white family living in a house that's identical to the house of the black family next door, um, which has given me some occasions for, for reflection on the, the differences in our lives and the ways that we have or have not benefited from the systemic racism about, around us. So one example of that is um, the, before we moved into our house, the previous owner did a major renovation of the attic of this little bungalow. And um, and I was describing this renovation to my next door neighbor over the fence. And he said, I'd love to do something like that to my attic. I would love to do it. Um, I, I want so much to to renovate our attic. I always have wanted to. And he said, but, um, but I'm never going to have the money for that. And um, and this is a man who's worked his whole life. Um, he's worked for the post office for longer than I've been alive. Yeah. Um, and he he mentioned to me in an offhand way. He said, "You know, I have a lot of family members who are in jail and who are in prison, and mm. um, and that's that's one of the draws on us financially 
is that yeah. is supporting the right, families right. of people who can't work, and yeah. um, and so that's just that's just one tiny window, right, into how the the criminalization of black life is a draw financially on people who are not engaging in any activity, right, who have never been accused of a crime, never. Yeah. Um, um, and never then put who in can't jail, never renovate their, their attics to increase the price of their property and all of that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and my neighbor left off this conversation we were talking and he left off by saying, I guess God just didn't want me to be rich, mm. you know, and and mm. I said, I don't think it's God. Actually, <laughs> It's, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I. I. um it feels so good to talk about this. Mm. Um, I it's so rare to talk about it. Um, I <clears throat> there's a sentence you had, and uh, and yeah, in the in the piece, the the white debt piece. I have written and erased a hundred sentences here. Mm. Trying and failing to articulate something that I can sense but not yet speak, and I I wonder, uh, I you know I I may be reading into this, but um, the truth is this is also fraught, and there are so many things kind of coming to the surface that in part feel very shocking, whether they should be shocking or not. Um, you know, violence and kind of seeing the roots of things we haven't seen have, um, um, and there's, you know, I, I think one reason I appreciate that you work with language because language itself is so fraught and the wrong word mm. um, can be, uh, you know, taken as an, as an offense, mm-hmm. um, even though we're reckless with other words. Right, right. Yeah, I do. I think that this is is a major problem for us in terms of talking about race. And um, as much as as attentive as I am to language and as, as sensitive as I am to it as as a writer, and as much as I believe that that insight can be found or lost through language, I do think that when it comes to racism, we we pay too much attention to language and we we give language a power that mm. I don't believe it actually has. Mm. So um, quite a lot is made, you, you know, uh, quite a lot of theatrics goes into saying or not saying the right thing yeah. around race and using or not using the right words. Um, so much so that you'd think, you know, it, listening to Americans as, you know, as an alien visitor from another planet, you'd think that the worst thing a human being could ever do is say the N-word. Mm-hmm. Um, when, in fact, I think there are many graver actions that are happening that um, that happen without anyone ever saying anything offensive. Um, right. And that a lot of our policing of offensive language, it, it's not that that isn't in a, unimportant. It's not that people should be allowed to say whatever they want. But I feel that there's there's extra energy put into that policing because we aren't sure how to address the real problems mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, and how to address the kind of systemic racism that um, that happens without anyone ever saying anything that would look to us 
like racism. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess I feel particularly strongly about this because I'm a teacher and because I teach writing and I routinely work with students who want to write about race. Um, and these are students uh, of, from all different racial backgrounds who want to write about race but are afraid to even touch the subject because yeah. they're afraid they'll say the wrong thing. And they're afraid that once they say the wrong thing, they will be forever um, branded as in the wrong. Yeah. And, um, and I think that this is part of how we're hobbling ourselves around, um, coming to, to kind of broader and more advanced understandings around what's going on with race. And, and about that, how we live together as opposed to just how we talk together, how we speak together. Yeah, mm -hmm, we, we mm -hmm. can't, I think if you can't talk about something, you can't think about something. Mm. And um, and I think I've worked with students who could barely, barely let themselves think they were so scared of thinking the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, and so that I'm not I don't want to be misunderstood as making an argument for um, for offensive language. Mm -hmm. But I guess the argument that I'm making is um, that I think that we need a cultural atmosphere where we understand where the where the crimes are happening, right? And mm -hmm. that that many of the crimes are not in the arena of language. Um, but that we need to be able to stumble through imperfect language and imperfect sentences in order to find our way to where the crimes are happening. Mm. I I have a friend who's um in her late seventies and she was a professor is a, is a professor, and uh, she told me a story about in the mid-60s when civil rights was happening. Um, she had a, a close friend who was also a, a colleague, a fellow academic who was African-American, and that they had a pact that, mm -hmm. or, or, or that Pauline had a kind of an agreement with her that... Um, she would she would bounce things off her that she was going to say or write and say is this racist right mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. is does this work is this offensive and um, and I I've just I love that story um, mm -hmm. uh, because it was it was it was self correction in the context of a relationship and she was safe yeah. enough right to ask yeah. to be corrected as opposed to. Um, mm -hmm so worried about getting something wrong that she wouldn't say anything. Mm -hmm. um, and, mm -hmm. I, and I feel like we've, we've had this illusion here in our 21st century that we're way past that, right? Like we should mm -hmm. know what the wrong word would be or what the offensive thought would be or mm -hmm. what, the, mm -hmm. what the egregious uh, uh, omission would be. And we don't. You know, right. I mean, sadly, right. we should, but we don't. And um, mm -hmm. I've wished, you know, what if we could can have sort of each had have a friendship like that, uh, mm -hmm. a, a yeah. safe space um, where it would where we could air and ask to be have it pointed out lovingly, uh, so that we could get it mm -hmm. right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I and you know, this is another way in which. I really, really strongly believe that, um, you know, for all the ways that white people benefit materially from racism, mm -hmm. that we're very damaged by it. And I think that this is one of the ways in which we're damaged. And um, 
the the racist structures of our society cut us off from close friendships with people of color yeah. and that doesn't mean we don't have them right but there's many the, there's many ways in which we're alienated from each other mm-hmm. and that's one of the things we lose right that kind of productive conversation that can move a person's thinking forward and um, can expand a, a person's not just their, you know, acceptable vocabulary, yeah. but also their real understanding. Yeah, their understanding and their presence in the world, their ability to mm-hmm. move forward. Uh, it's also, um, you know, another very striking thing about this moment we inhabit is we've, we're aware of all this unfinished business, you know, these things we actually thought we'd made so much progress on, but also seeing full circle that the legacy of whiteness is now costing white people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, I think you, because of the writing you've done previously in this article, you, you, you found yourself somewhat in, in that discussion. Um, mm-hmm. how, how do you, and I think that, you know, that's, it's been a factor in this, um, in the presidential campaign between Donald Trump mm-hmm. and, and Hillary Clinton. How, Talk to me a little bit about how you've thought about this specter. Not not the presidential mm-hmm. campaign specifically, but mm-hmm. this legacy of whiteness and Yeah. You know, I, I think the the person who I've encountered who's most articulate on this point is James Baldwin. And mm-hmm. I've gotten so much out of reading James Baldwin. Um he has he has an essay called um, On Being White and Other Lies. And in that essay, he talks about um, the price that that was paid by the people who were not white before they came to America. So he, he also makes a statement. He says nobody was white before they came to America. <laughs> right. And he said, you know, the, those Poles and those Germans and those Austrians and the English they were Austrians and Poles and English before they came to this country. And when they got here, they became white. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, and, and what, but what they paid, the price of the ticket was their moral, their moral being. And, um, and he also makes a statement in there that the, that he says, nobody paid more for the price of that ticket than Jews. Um, and it's a really provocative to me, really compelling essay um, that illuminates this idea that um, that we actually have paid for what we've gotten, um, but we we've we've paid something we never should have given up, and um, and that is you know what Baldwin calls your moral life, your, you know, or your moral being. Um, your responsibility to the the people around you, the the mutual obligation we have to other humans, mm-hmm. um, this something very uh, spiritually essential was traded for the material benefit, um, and that I, I think there's almost nobody better than Baldwin at illuminating the the incredible loss right that that racism has been for white people um 
I've I've learned actually probably more about being white from reading Baldwin than I have from any other source. Um, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about his um, his statements around the price of the ticket. And um, another place that helped me understand what that price of the ticket really looked like was uh, Noel Ignatiev's book, How the Irish Became White. Um, and this is a really interesting historical study that, that looks at how um, the Irish were not actually considered white when they yeah. first immigrated to right. this country. Um, and, and he looks at the process by which um, the Irish came to be accepted as white. And, um, and that process was incredibly violent, incredibly brutal, and, um, and involved acquiescing in, um, again, brutal, violent, uh, racist behavior. Um, and that, that uh, again, was, that was the price of the ticket. Um, a ticket that, you know, I, I consider overpaid. Um, Would you say a little bit about, more concretely, about what you look at in society today and say this was the price of the ticket? Mm. Yeah, let me search my (laughs) reservoir of examples for a minute. Yeah. Um, I mean, just to make this concrete. um, Yeah, I know. It is. It's it's really hard to talk about this particular. mm -hmm. I mean, aspect. You know, there are things like the foreclosure crisis, or the opiate Mm -hmm. addiction, or the Mm -hmm. the the white pain in the presidential campaign that manifests as anger and xenophobia and all of that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there's a way in which a lot of what happened to people of color, African Americans in particular, uh, and tribal mm-hmm. people in particular, um, is now afflicting um, white people as well. Like these systems didn't stay closed the structures didn't mm-hmm. stay closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think where I see it is in fractured alliances. So um, I think part of the price of the ticket, for instance, is that this, these disaffected, poor white people. Um, see themselves as white before they understand themselves as poor, right? So mm-hmm. there's a potentially very powerful alliance um, between uh, poor whites and poor blacks in our country. Mm-hmm. And that alliance has been undermined by a, a history that encourages white people to think about themselves as primarily white, you know, to identify there first yeah. before identifying um, you know, with their, uh, with other people who are working class, for instance. Um, you also can see this in the women's movement, right? It's one of the the major critiques of the women's movement is the way in which uh, African American women were um, excluded, and um, and the way in which the movement failed to embrace and um, and build on the intelligence and concerns of African-American women. So, again, you have a really important 
liberation movement undermined by um, racial fracturing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and again, I think that that's that's a place where you know someone someone like me, a white woman, right? I've um, I've paid for. I guess part of the price of the ticket for me is is paid in the fact that I do not have an alliance with all other women across all racial groups, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that would serve me well. Yeah. Um, and that it would be, you know, intellectually that's more important to me than um, being identified as white, right? Or yeah. identifying with this racial group. Yeah. Um, but the 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 fracturing that we have the social fracturing that we have prevents alliances mm-hmm. and and prevents flourishing right? it prevents um, yeah would be life giving to for those fractures to to soften and and go fall away yeah and mm-hmm. ultimately I think who it benefits is a very tiny tiny little segment of the society um, you know those people who are um you know who who fall into every group of advantage right it's yeah. uh you know so white men who are upper class and have social access um when that's really just a tiny tiny little percentage of i guess mm-hmm. we're really you know this is another way of talking about the one percent right mm-hmm. it's um but part of how part of how we've empowered the one percent is by allowing other people to think that by virtue of their race, they might have access to the one percent right. um, that all they need to do is um, is work hard enough and try hard enough and be good enough and um, that that they might get to belong or their children point. might get to belong at or some their point. children mm-hmm. might. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I think mm-hmm. that that's part of why, where the anger that is driving Trump yeah. supporters is coming from is yeah. that that's, that's not a promise that has played out, right? It's, yeah. it, it hasn't, um, it hasn't delivered. Um, I just want to make sure, cause we, we got going a little late. Uh, I yeah. want to make sure that the studio is, Chris, do you know, can we keep, can we go for, Okay, so I just think fifteen or twenty more minutes. Okay, you know, I want to I want to come back to raising our children, and mm-hmm. uh, of course, that's um, you know that's a primary place we can walk with this differently. Um, mm-hmm. You write very beautifully about, I mean, if you've written in many ways about you know raising your son, the ordinary joys of life. Um, you did mention a while ago. How you wrote in that Times piece on White Dad about, I think this must be what you were talking about, what somebody took exception to, that mm-hmm. when your son was four, um, he brought home a library book about the slaves who built the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to read this. It's, I, I didn't tell him sure. that slaves once accounted for more wealth than all the industry in this country combined, or that slaves were, as ta Coates writes, the down payment on this country's independence. Or that freed slaves became, after the Civil War, this country's second mortgage. Nonetheless, my overview of slavery and Jim Crow left my son worried about what it meant to be white, what legacy he had inherited. I don't want to be on this team, he said, with his head in his hands. 
You might be stuck on this team, I told him, but you don't have to play by its rules. Yeah. And that, you know, that you don't have to play by its rules part is, is of course, easier said than done. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, and I think that that, for me, is an ongoing parenting challenge, but it's also a challenge for me as an adult living an adult life yeah. is where and when do I do I refuse the rules, right? Where and when do I defy expectations um, that are that are written into the social code? Um, yes. I And I think, yeah. you know, yeah. this is I for me it's tricky because um Because rules are so important, right, for both parenting and for education, right? So our children's lives are little nets of rules. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that it's it's actually a pretty complicated, nuanced conversation to talk about how do you discern whether a rule is unjust or not and and when do you choose to violate it. But for me, it's been really, really important to... Um, to remain connected to and to continue to educate myself on a history of resistance, right? And particularly um, a history of, of white resistance. And there's in, in many different forms, right? And right now, recently, I've been studying very old resistant movements. I've, I've been studying um, a group of people called the Blacks in, um, in England that were 17th century peasants who were resisting um, kind of privatization of land. And, um, and some of their resistance was... Um, was humorous and um, and playful, and some of it was dead serious. And um, they, for example, protested poaching laws in the forest, um, laws that that favored the rich by killing deer in the forest. Um, and the blacks were met by legislation called the Black Act, and the Black Act um, made fifty different uh, activities, including going in dis disguise. So the the blacks blacked their faces with okay. soot, and that's why they were called the blacks. Um, and so blacking your face with soot was one of the fifty criminal offenses that could be punished by the death penalty under this legislation. <sighs> yeah. um, and you know, touching that history is is a reminder to me that there's a really long legacy of resistance here and um, end of brutal rep repression of resistance, too. And um, and I, I guess I'm not sure what more to say on that other than for me, it's incredibly heartening to see that and to see that that going back hundreds of years, people have been saying no um, to to the structures around them that they find wrong and oppressive. Um, it's yeah. also scary and that people have been systematically oppressed for that and killed and hanged and imprisoned. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. I guess I don't, I don't know where I'm going. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and I... I also feel like, um, like so. I again, we we live in this moment of, which is is of you know of of African American people being shot because they were stopped in their car, 
Um, and also, but not just that, realizing that this has been going on. And mm. somehow, because, you know, is it because people have have cell phones and iPads with them? I mean, somehow we're seeing it and it's being captured. Mm. And, and, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that fact that it's been happening and we didn't see it. Yeah. Right, yeah. Is, is what is really... Uh, the the crime um, mm-hmm. uh, that we have all committed, um, but I also feel like I feel like the promise of this moment is our eyes being opened, mm-hmm. and um, you know you were talking a little while ago about the study about high schools and AP classes. So mm-hmm. so my I was thinking as you were talking about that, you know, my son went to a great big urban high school in St. Paul, and we liked that about it, that it was a big urban high school and it was diverse. Um, but an African Amer- a new friend of mine who's African-American talked about taking his son to visit that school and mm-hmm. being there at lunchtime. And being there at lunchtime and seeing this high school cafeteria where kids, you know, where kids, where you have all these high school kids being high school kids and they're laughing and they're talking and it was very mixed um, and then the bell rings, and the white kids head up the stairs to the AP and uh, IB classes, and mm-hmm. most n- hardly any black kids. That's so, mm-hmm. you know. So you have this color, this stark segregation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And what is what feels so shameful to me is that I. I mean, my son has graduated now, and he had graduated by the point that I heard this story. And I, I knew that there wasn't that there was a segregation going on that I didn't understand and I didn't like. But I didn't. Mm-hmm. I was never there at lunchtime. I never saw that. And I, like, why? It is our job, right? As white parents, as much as it's the job of the parents of the kids of color, to mm-hmm. not let this uh, continue. Right. Yes. Yeah. And that's I, I've been very inspired by a, a number of things um, that I've read in in a journal that's that's no longer being published called Race Trader. And this was published by um, Noel Ignatiev, who I mentioned, the, the author of How the Irish Became White and John Garvey. Uh, published this journal for years. And one of the stories I read in there was about um, a group of parents who protested the selection processes in their school um, that produced a gifted program in a school that was majority black. Uh, the gifted program was majority white. Yeah. And so, um, so white parents protested this saying, this this can't possibly be the case, right? Not all the gifted children in this school can be white. Yeah. So there must be a problem with how we're deciding who gets into the gifted program. There must be something wrong here. And I do think that that's, um, that's our job, right, as, as white parents, is to, um, to see that and know it can't be true. Um, mm-hmm. And... And then to try to whatever that system is that's producing a gifted program that is um, entirely white at a school that's mostly black to dismantle that system. Um, Yeah. Again, easier said than done. Um, But I but I do think that there are in these particular cases, there are things um, 
there are things that can be done if people say we won't have this. Um, I was also really inspired by a story that I heard on on uh, public radio here in Chicago a couple years ago about a group of students at a very um, wealthy public school in Lincoln Park. Um, and these students were, um, many of them were white students who were protesting the fact that their school was going to get a major renovation that would cost a lot of money. Um, and they were protesting on the grounds that they didn't think their school was the most in need of the public schools in the city. Mm. And they thought that it was unjust that uh, that city funds would be going towards their school when there were schools that didn't have enough textbooks to go around. Mm. Um, and I, I also found that story quite exciting and thought, OK, um, we're, we're getting somewhere here. Yeah. How, as you're out there talking about this, and as you've gotten a reaction to the black to the white debt piece, um, um, is there a difference in how? Well, so I say one thing. I watched online. I watched uh, kind of a, a book, of, or uh, yeah, it was a book event you did. Maybe it was for um, notes from No Man's Land, which also touched on a lot mm-hmm. of these issues. Something that was interesting to me is that people were asking you questions about your reactions to things, mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. as though. It wasn't about them, right? Almost as though mm-hmm. they weren't implicated, or I don't, I don't know. It was almost like they were disassociated from the the fact of whiteness that you were talking about. But I, I'm curious about mm-hmm. that. But also, I just wonder if there's a different reaction. Like, how do people of color respond? Do you hear um, from them, from from pe- from non-white people about this? Yeah, thinking? I do. I do. Um, and you know, that's. When I started writing about whiteness and writing about race, um, so quite a long time ago, that that first book came out in 2009, but I'd I'd been writing it for seven years. Um, I understood my intention as talking to white people about whiteness. Um, So it wasn't my... um, It wasn't my expectation that... um, that anyone else would necessarily find much of what I was saying particularly illuminating or interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I have gotten, I've gotten positive, supportive, um, and also challenging notes from people uh, across the spectrum um, from all different racial backgrounds. Um, and I think. <clears throat> When people do, in writing, identify themselves to me. Um, now I'm getting a tickle again. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <coughs> um, I do hear from a lot of mixed race people um, who I do think have a, a special, um, I, I guess, a special place in a polarized conversation in a polarized society, right? Where yeah, yeah. Uh, especially people, there's mixed race people who can who can pass um, and who might, in some circumstances, be white and be understood as white and treated mm-hmm. as white, and in other circumstances, be seen as black and be uh, treated as black. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that people who are in that position have have some really interesting insights into this problem. Um, 
But yeah, you know, I guess I'm not sure this is answering your question, but I guess one of the things that surprised me um, in terms of response to my own work was that for the most part, my writing about race did not seem to make a lot of people very upset. And that worried me a little bit, actually, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Um, you know, that some of my writing more recently has, in fact, made people upset. And, and just the other day, my husband sent me a, a picture of a poster he saw in our library here. Mm-hmm. I think it's a poster from the 60s. And the poster says, um, you're nobody till somebody hates you. And um, <laughs> yeah. and I actually, you know, I, I, I think that's that's somewhat true especially if if you're a writer in this subject matter um you're probably not doing your job unless people are pissed off and Gosh, angry but i mean that that's a diagnosis of a problem <laughs> isn't it i mean i i wonder if you're just being kind of straight you're saying let's talk about whiteness you're um mm-hmm, framing mm-hmm. the question a little differently gosh we've got to have a place for uh speaking honestly that is not that controversial even if it's not everybody's experience and yeah so yeah. I, I don't know <laughs> I so, hope that- you know I have to say you know this is something maybe this is also from my experience and position as a teacher um, and maybe it has something to do with who I am also as a learner but one of the things I've observed in education and this is something we I don't feel like it's talked about a lot in in education is that um is that learning can be really really upsetting and it can set off a lot of negative emotions um mm-hmm. it can set off anger it can set off fear um it can set off uh hatred towards the person who's teaching you it it's it's not I I don't think that learning happening right always looks as um like a as pleasant epiphany <laughs> as we'd like yeah. to imagine yeah. it is yeah. and i know that's true of my own learning mm-hmm. i i know mm-hmm. that i've been um in situations where i've been learning rapidly difficult lessons i've been furious mm-hmm. and i've been reactive mm-hmm. and i've been um frustrated and um and i i do sometimes see that with my own students too who are you know for the most part many of my students are extremely poised well-behaved midwestern or um you know middle american students who um who who don't throw tantrums i guess yeah. is the way to yeah. say but still i see fr- i see uh, you know every once in a while some some anger some frustration break out and i do think that um that it's fair to expect that that in a conversation that's as difficult as this there there will be flashes of defensiveness of anger of um of bitterness, of, you know, ferocious resentment. Um, And that I guess the space has to contain that. Mm. Um, There's something hopeful about, about taking in fury as a function of learning. 
I actually, you know, maybe it's because I have a terrible temper myself, mm, yeah. but I actually, I'm inclined to embrace fury yeah, yeah. Um, in, you know, not just in an academic setting, but in, you know, in, in a conversation in general and yeah. in, in any essential conversation, I think probably has the potential to set off some anger. Mm. Um, oh, so, so, you know, we live in this, we also, another, another Another aspect of this moment is that I hear language, and not just language, but intentions surfacing, you know, words mm-hmm. like, uh, I wrote some of them down. Well, like, I mean, if you know, people are talking about truth and reconciliation commissions mm-hmm. for race, and mm-hmm. um, um, what's the word that's escaping me that Brian Stevenson uses, you know, uh, why can I not think? Um, mercy, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. using words like mercy in mm-hmm. conversations about public policy. Um, mm-hmm. You, you know, words like redemption. I feel are coming yeah. in, and you, you have reflected on, and I, and I feel like this is a new opening. You know, to say how do we live redemptively, reparatively, mm-hmm. rather than yeah. destructively? What does that look like? How does it start? Um, you had this stunning sentence in your working, uh, speaking about your book on immunity, which was, you know, tangentially about this subject. But, you know, we may find if we get into this that almost everything tangentially Mm -hmm. (laughs) touches on race, you know, where you Mm -hmm. said, I understood that if I really believed in living reparatively, I was going to have to act out that belief through my son's body. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that... That wasn't for me an easy realization, mm-hmm. and and I don't think it is for many people. Um, it was actually, you know, in the in the moment, somewhat devastating for me to realize that um, that if I really believed what I thought I believed, it was acting on those beliefs was going to involve accepting some risk for my own child. Mm-hmm. And um, and I did, you know, it, it, but I, I but I it would be a lie to say it was easy. And um, yeah. and I think, you know, part of the difficulty came from the fact that I was very o- awake to um, the the realities around um I, I guess the real risks of vaccination, right? So that's the other thing that kind of falls silent sometimes in our conversation around vaccination is that... Um, and that if was the topic of on immunity. Yes, that was yeah. the topic of that mm-hmm. book. And um, which, you know, I was actually surprised to find myself talking about race and privilege again in that book. Mm-hmm. And I should not have been, as you say, this is this is in everything. Mm-hmm. But when I initially entered that subject, I thought that um, that I would be in entirely new terrain um, and that I was uh, that I was forging a project that would be making entirely new arguments. Instead, in many ways, I picked up a thread of thinking that I'd left off in notes from no man's land about about privilege and and thought through what to my eye was just a, a single specific example in the case of 
um, vaccination. Whether whether will you accept right. some risk? Right. You know, will you accept some risk to protect another person? Right. Um, that's that's kind of the question that that vaccination raises for me, um, and sometimes that question gets a little bit distorted because sometimes we're expected if if you're pro vaccination you're expected to insist that vaccination does not involve risk right, right, right. but it does right. the, the risks are quite minimal especially compared to lots of other things that we do like driving in cars right right, right. Um, but but it's it's still real and mm-hmm. i and i do think that to think about it well we do have to acknowledge that the risk is real um, but also acknowledge that the rewards are real and that the rewards are significant and yeah, yeah. um and that I guess the work of being in a society, right, being a, a functional member of a society does not come without its risks, right? It's um, we're not guaranteed a place in the society that is um, that is going to be safe for us in every way. Um, and I think many people who are not white understand that and Quite a few people who are white believe that they're entitled to safety in every realm of their lives. It's like a birthright. In no matter the cost to other people, too. Right. Um, And so in in this way, I found I was I was somewhat caught off guard by how much the debate around vaccination mirrored some of the the conversations that I'd been part of around race and racial privilege. Mm. You've also been reflecting on the notion of apology. Mm-hmm. Um, just as we finish here, um, is that one step in living reparatively, um, especially for those of us who are white? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. I this is something I I, I wrote uh, an essay called All Apologies, where I I tried to think through this question of are there are there crimes that were too significant to be apologized for, right? And yeah. and does something like slavery fall into that category? Is something that uh, a wrong for which there is no apology, um, and and I wrestled with that in that essay, and um, and I think in the end where I've come out as a thinker is with the belief that that apologies are not insignificant, and even when they're symbolic, that there's you can make symbolic gestures that that can be restorative, um, but that that's. Uh, that an apology alone is not going to right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, as you say, it, it could be an important part of a process. Um, and just the other night, I was at uh, a forum here at Northwestern um, where three um, three researchers were talking about um, Native American history and um, in the context of of thinking about how do we right the wrongs that were done? Um, and and is, is anything going to right this wrong? And one of the women who was speaking was talking about uh, 
actually a truth and reconciliation movement in Canada yeah. um, to address um, the ways in which First Nation people had been wronged in Canada. Um, and specifically, there was uh, an effort there to compensate people who, Native peoples, who had been sent to re-education schools. So children who had been institutionalized, taken away from their families, and sent to schools that were meant to um, assimilate them into the um, non-Native society. And, um, and that the government is now compensating people who were put through this traumatic experience. Um, and to her, to the speaker, that was meaningful. Um, that was a gesture that it's not going to undo the wrong and it's not going to right the wrong. But having a, the government of a country acknowledge the wrong and, um, and call it a wrong and, and then make some... Um, you know, largely symbolic, but still material um, uh, kind of uh, gesture to address that wrong is um, that that was feeling significant to this particular speaker. And I don't want to assume it would feel significant to everyone. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, but I do think that 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 sort of gesture is a start. I think it's a starting point. And um and that we probably aren't going to get anywhere from denying that that a wrong has been done. Mm -hmm. And but I think also what you're saying is that that if apologies or that kind of gesture are offered, that they need to be understood in the moment they're being offered as a first step rather than a conclusion. Right. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And. Um, and I think many people would say, I certainly feel this way, that there is no there is no financial reparation that would compensate the the loss of native lands and native culture, right? There there's we can't we can't make a payment that will right that wrong, that yeah. will yeah. Um, balance that debt. And uh, and the same is true for slavery, right? There, there, mm -hmm. is no, there is no reparation that will repay that debt. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't acknowledge it, um, acknowledge that the debt is there, that, that it was a wrong, um, and that the wrong didn't, the wrongdoing didn't end with slavery. Yeah. Um, and, and I think signal that, that we as a society are committed to, I'm not sure, I guess to, to another way of living, right? That isn't parasitic on the people around us. Mm -hmm. That, that we have to. That, and again, we, you and I are speaking as two white people that mm -hmm. we have to craft and you know, kind of discover that new way of living, kind of one life and one action at a time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, though, you know, I, f I find this 
super embarrassing to talk out loud about really yeah. like <laughs> no no it feels really scary honestly yeah yeah and you know i'm i'm like already pre-mortified about any of this being on the air on the radio um as much as like I, I think I'm allowing this embarrassment to just wash over me because I still like really deeply fundamentally believe in bumbling your way through a conversation about this subject because I think it is so important. We just cannot be silent right, because on it's subject. so inadequate. Is what you're saying. <laughs> it's very inadequate. Yeah. yeah, I feel like and and I also, you know, it, as we talk, I just feel super aware of my own like partial understanding, you know, and mm -hmm. and I, I feel like I'm constantly touching the the edges of my own right. comprehension. <laughs> and yeah. um and I'm I'm aware that uh that I'm really not getting it all. And um so yeah, so it feels just very uncomfortable mm -hmm. um and um and intensely mortifying. <laughs> <laughs> But do you think it's, I mean, yeah, I, I know, I, I'm, I'm with you. It also feels like we have to start somewhere, that it's necessary. I think so, yeah, I, I really do. And, um, and I guess, you know, as both a teacher and just a person who lives a life and a parent, I just am a huge believer in hard conversations. I, I've... Um, but I think to your point also, we need to also allow ourselves to have inadequate conversations yeah. and not think that you, we have to begin by getting it right or perfect or complete right. because right. it's not possible. As you said, we're talking about generations upon, generation upon generation and yeah. things that have been conscious and unconscious and we don't even ourselves comprehend. You and I, even though we've done a lot mm -hmm. of reflecting on this, don't know how much we carry around unconsciously. Like that's something we're learning about yeah. ourselves. Yeah. You know, the very first question my son ever asked me about race, it wasn't that long after he started talking. So he was he was somewhere between two and three. Um, and he asked me, I was anticipating a question like this, um, but I did not anticipate the form it took. He asked me why a friend of his, um, uh, why a friend of his had brown skin. And I was expecting a question like that. But what was surprising was that f the friend he asked about was someone who uh, who would be considered white. Mm -hmm. um, and I think her background is um, Romanian. Mm -hmm. And um, but uh, but she's her features are European and she she moves through the world as a white person. And so does her mother. And um, but her skin is, in fact, darker than the skin of a number of other people we knew who would be classified as black. Yeah. So the very first question my son asked me about race was much more complicated than the question I'd been anticipating. <laughs> um, what he was asking me is, why is this person with dark skin called white when there's people with lighter skin who we call black? Mm. Um, mm. And that wasn't a question I was prepared to answer. I was ready for the, why do we call this friend who's categorized as black, why does he have brown skin? I was ready for that one. Yeah. But I wasn't ready for, why do white people have brown skin? Um, what he was really getting at is a question that went straight to um, the inconsistencies in how we define race in this country, yeah. right? And, um, and some of the absurdity of it. 
some of the absurdity of it. Mm -hmm. And what I realized from that question, he was very, very young. I also realized how much he already understood. And um, and I was quite taken aback by that. He already understood that this girl's category was white. He knew that. What he was confused about was why her skin didn't seem to match Mm, her category. mm, mm. You... Somewhere you pose these two questions together, or these two these two ideas, the things we do to each other out of fear, the things mm-hmm. we owe each other. Mm-hmm. I wonder how that uh, idea, that question flows into your sense of what it means to be human like what what have you t- mm-hmm. what do you take from all of this reflecting and writing that you've done um how mm-hmm. does it expand and uh give contour to that question you're, you're where you start to think about that what does it mean to be human yeah um <laughs> i can't even begin to answer that um but i guess i i could poke at it a little yeah, bit yeah. Uh, and and say that um i think that that what makes us human is in in what we share um and um and i do think that we're to to the degree that we're successful in in sharing a you know both a, a society and a culture and resources and a community um, we're we're more fully human and um, and that we degrade our own humanity when we fail in that project of of sharing both the things we've already built together and and the 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 things that are available to us um, I don't know. Is that too wide an answer? No, well, I... well, just no. It's it's well, it's a, it's a it's a ridiculous question. But so <laughs> so, how would you? So how would you? If this were a list, you know, the things we uh, this phrase, I really like this. The things we owe each other, you know. Yeah. What are those things? What are uh, just some of those things that we owe each other? As you've come to think about this. Yeah, I think about this all the time. That particular question: what What do we owe to other people? Um, what do we owe to the people we love? What do we owe to the people who we don't know, who are strangers? Um, and I have an ever-shifting um, thought landscape around that. Um, but I do think, and this comes back to fear, I have come to believe that we owe it to other people not to be afraid of them. Mm. And I, I've come to feel very strongly about that. Um, I, I think... Fear is a a deceptively destructive emotion, and it's um, it's not just disabling uh, in terms of the person who is fearful. It can be you can be undone by your own fear. Um, but the thing that that I think goes underrecognized is that fear is very violent, and um, and that quite a bit of damage is done to people who are feared. Uh, by the fearful, but and but again, you you could hear mm-hmm. somebody. I I can just hear the person of color. You know that mother mm-hmm. who uh, who sends her child out reasonably every morning yeah. in fear 
was saying that yeah. that is a position of privilege. And I know what you're talking about because fear Absolutely. is one of the most violent, destructive forces in our life together right now. But this gets us right back to the question of in a, the yeah. inequality of our privilege. Exactly. Yes. And I and I've I think that that's it's a really important point that you just made. And um, and I'm not really sure how to meet that other than saying that I think that that's that's fear that's happening in a different social context. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's. um, I hate to to like divide fear into rational and irrational Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. those terms are really inadequate but um but maybe earned and unearned you know Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. that fear that that kenyan mother in my son's school feels about um sending her kids out into the world every day that that's earned yeah um and um, and I, I think that there are other sorts of fear, particularly many of the fears that white people nurture um, that are unearned yeah. fears. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's uh, there's this book called The Culture of Fear um, where I can't actually remember the author's name, but he, he does a great job of pointing out... Um, you know, one of the things he says is that there are just more dangers out there than we can reasonably have f- fear for. So yeah. every culture, every society decides what it's going to be afraid of. Um, so all of us are making decisions all the time about fear, choosing what we're going to be afraid right, of, what right, we're not right. going to be afraid of. Um, and we're just not going to ever cover every danger. Um, that wouldn't be, it wouldn't be possible and it also wouldn't be psychologically healthy. Yeah. But what he does point out is, he, he does a great job of pointing out a, a, a particular kind of, um, I guess, uh, contradiction in American society where as a society, we tend to nurture fears of the very kinds of people that are most vulnerable in the society. So one of his examples is black men. And he says, you know, black men are an object of fear in this society. And it's hard to find another group of people who are more um, politically socially and culturally vulnerable than black yeah, men. Yeah, yeah. Right. I I guess one way I make a distinction is uh, we, we can't ask people to put themselves in the way of danger, right? Mm-hmm. But we have a tendency, and I guess our brains work this way, to, to see... Um, you know, the dangerous leader or a dangerous, you know, event or exemplar and then associate an entire group of people mm-hmm. as dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that's, you're saying that's the fear that's chosen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and who is it? Uh, the philosopher Zizek, right, who talks about this as lying in the guise of truth. So... Um, so where something may happen that is a, a, a true event. Um, and I think he was talking about Katrina um, mm-hmm. when yeah. when he used this term lying in the guise of truth. Um, so say, uh, 
say a store gets looted in the wake of Katrina, this one instance is then used to um, animate racist fantasies. Right. You know, right. so a store is looted, therefore all black people are thieves. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. and or you know, um, a person is shot, therefore all black people are violent um, and potentially murderous. This, that's. I, that term lying in the guise of truth was really helpful to me in in the way it, it illuminated um, the the lies that we manufacture out of actual events. Mm-hmm. So something can actually happen, but it doesn't mean what we think it means. You know, what's interesting about the path we just took is... And we're even. I mean, you said something that I believe is true: that fear is disanger, dangerous, and disabling, mm-hmm. and it has a violent force in our life together. Mm-hmm. And yet, even as we start to interrogate that, you know, there's white fear and black fear, and mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. it has. You know, we still have to. I don't know. We have to. It's complicated. It's complex. Um, Say a little bit more about what would be on your list of the things we owe each other. Mm. Um, well, again, I think this this is in some ways very, you know, very personal for me, um, you know, because I, I do ask this question of myself for myself all the time, mm. um, but but one again one of my kind of private conclusions for my own self, um, and this has to do with fear, but it's it's slightly different. Is that I I do feel that we we owe each other trust until that trust is broken, mm. and um, and I think that that can be in practice incredibly difficult, mm-hmm. and um, and that was something that I was thinking through in on immunity in this book about vaccination. I was thinking through why why is it so hard for us as mothers to trust all these doctors and scientists, many of them mothers themselves, um, who are marshalling all this evidence um, that uh, that vaccination is uh, is safe and a risk worth taking for us and our children. Um, and I do think that we are, we live in a political climate and a political atmosphere that makes trust I- extremely difficult. And yeah. it can even seem quite foolish, yes. actually, yes. to, to yes. trust in this particular climate. Um, and I think. I think there's people who would disagree with me on this, and and probably rightly. So I, I'm, I guess that's just my way of saying that I'm not entirely sure that what I'm saying is right. I'm 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 maybe even partly convinced I'm wrong on this, but it's still <laughs> um, it's still something that I've come to that is important to me is uh, that. I, in my everyday interactions with other people, I feel that trust is something of a radical act. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I go to, to great efforts to trust the people around me. Yeah. Um, 
And it's interesting for me to observe how how difficult that is in various situations. Um, and there's situations where it isn't difficult, right? But but observing the differences um, it has been really instructive to me. And do you find that that is a risk that has rewards? Is to talk about that that paradigm before? I mean, do you find that many people many people in situations rise to that occasion? That it's worth it for you to go through the erring on the side of trust. For me, it has been. I for me, that's it's it's a rewarding way to live, um, and I do think that doesn't mean that people haven't disappointed me and broken my trust. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, but it, it it tends when that happens to me, it intends to, it tends to be in situations where I never would have anticipated it. You know, and mm-hmm. I feel like this this does come back to the question of fear. I think there's some people who feel that nurturing their own fear will will um, will be a balm against danger. If mm-hmm. if you just mm-hmm. feel fearful enough mm-hmm. and often enough, you'll save yourself from the dangers of the world. And um, and I do think that there's also this sense if you're if you're not trusting, if you're just suspicious enough and wary enough that y- you won't be you won't be hurt. Um, and, and I don't think that's true. I think you get hurt either way. So you, right, you right. either you know, you get to live as a suspicious, wary person, paranoid who gets hurt or you get to live as someone who trusts other people and gets hurt. Mm. It's. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if that's it. Yeah, no, that's really helpful and <laughs> uplifting conclusion. Yeah, and no, and in this term, in this in this context of of whiteness, um, you know, what what do we owe as as white people? I mean, is guilt? Um, this is again. This is almost like opening up the entire discussion again. But mm-hmm. what? Where where would you, you know, what would kind of be the first thing that came yeah. to you with that question? You know, this is a question that I do, again, I, I'm asking myself all the time and mm-hmm. trying to answer in actually very concrete ways. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and my answer is, again, constantly evolving and constantly shifting. Yeah. Um, but I, I do feel that that I owe action to the communities that I'm a part of. Um, And those communities are various and overlapping. But for instance, the whole reason I was in a meeting at my son's school to talk about um, an event we were going to have around talking about race is I I feel that I I owe it to that community Mm -hmm. to be involved in making making race a, something that we're talking about in the schools and with children and with teachers. And um, and I, f- I guess I feel that also in my community. So as a teacher, as an educator, I feel that um, it, it's, again, it's something that I feel I owe it to that community to... Um, bring up the question of question of race when we're when we're doing hiring and and when we're inviting guests to speak right, and right. um you know and that's something i fail on too <laughs> and um and 
I feel that I also owe it to my neighbors um, not to r- reduce them to symbols, right? Mm-hmm. It's That's the other thing that feels very – a real potential danger to me is that um, – that every individual uh, in a racial group can be reduced to a, um, right. you know, a, right. a symbol of that group as a whole. And so I, I feel that I owe it to the, the people around me, to my next door neighbors, to um, the people that I'm close with, to my friends, to fellow writers, um, to um, to see them as people. Mm-hmm. Um and not as symbols of or, or ideas or shorthand for uh, an experience that we assume is shared and, and may not be shared. Okay, I think I've worked too hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope I've given you enough to work with. I know I've, I've kind of uh, I've gone off track a little no, bit. No, no, it's okay. I think that, as you said earlier, it's this is so complicated that it's hard to talk about and it's also frightening to talk about because it's charged and also because we care about getting it right and and also we actually know because we have a sense of the complexity that we're not going to yeah so i think that is partly what you're contributing kind of sticking your neck out there um, well, and you're answering, you're asking all these great questions, like really terrific questions that are, I think a lot of them just feel to me unanswerable, Yeah, <laughs> you know, which I think that's the work of an essayist, right? To stab at unanswerable questions. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. like, that's, that's what I do. So I feel like I have to be game for unanswerable questions. Yeah. Um, but it's still, I, I feel like that's, you know, that's it. it at the end of the conversation, we still there's no no great moment of you know conclusion because we've just we've just wallowed around in some unanswerable well, no, questions I mean, I, for a while. Yeah, but I don't think we would have been true to the conversation to the subject mm-hmm. if there if we had pretended like there could be a conclusion. Yes, and now we've figured it out all out, and it'll be okay. It's <laughs> no, I'm really it's it's been great. I'm really grateful for what you're doing and for the conversation. So thank you so much, and thanks for giving oh, me all you. this time. Of course, it was a real pleasure to talk with you.